Support for this podcast and the following message come from Internet Essentials from Comcast. Connecting more than 6 million low-income people to low-cost, high-speed Internet at home. So students are ready for homework, class, graduation, and more. Now they're ready for anything. I'm Bob Boylan with All Songs Considered. Imagine being a singer, and in this case, a singer of traditional British folk songs, murder ballads, songs of love and hate, revenge, redemption, and tragedy. And as the singer of these songs, you get pretty well known in the circles of folk music in the 60s. Now imagine a broken heart robs you of your ability to sing, and for 38 years, your voice, once beautiful, is now silent. This is the story of the great Shirley Collins. But this tragic tale has a happy epilogue because Shirley Collins is finally singing again, and she has a new record, and she's our guest today on All Songs Considered. I listened to Shirley Collins' music as a teen in the heyday of British folk music. I own records by the Albion Band, the band she put together with her then lover and husband, Ashley Hutchings. Her songs were a huge influence on American singers as well. And one of those singers, so many years later, was Colin Malloy. And if you listen to The Decemberists, you know how much Colin loves a good tale and a good murder ballad. In fact, Colin Malloy released an EP of Shirley Collins' songs about 10 years ago. And so on this edition of All Songs Considered, Collins and Colin, a conversation with Shirley Collins and Colin Malloy. Shirley Collins is in England at the University of Sussex, Colin Malloy in Portland, Oregon, and I'm here in Washington, D.C. And I begin the conversation by playing this song from the new Shirley Collins album called Lodestar and the song Cruel Lincoln. Said the Lord to his lady, I am now going out, be aware of Collins, and I'm sure uh, Colin Malai will think this too. It's so great to hear your voice again. Uh, this song is, is called Cruel Lincoln, and uh, what's about to happen in this tale? 
because it ain't pretty. It's a pretty bloody ballad, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but in a way, you can justify cruel Lincoln's actions because he's a mason um, and he's built a manor house for the local lord and he hasn't been paid and he's out for revenge. Uh, you, it's interesting that these songs, you so rarely get the full backstory. I think I spent a couple listens to this song and uh, that, that's interesting. Um, uh, for once, I, I wondered how did he get in if the doors were bolted and the windows were pinned? So Not securely enough. <laughs> well, he this, knew the yes, secrets? Probably right. Um, this particular version of the ballad, which was collected in Sussex um, in the mid-1950s, came from a gamekeeper called Ben Butcher. And he didn't have the, the verse that explains the story, um, which is why you know I've had to just put that as a note in the song. But some versions do start with verses such as, Lincoln was as fine a mason as ever was on land. No, as ever, ever, ever the sun shone on, he built the Lord a castle, but paid got he none so some of the songs do explain it from the start but Ben Butcher's version just started off with the Lord going out and in many ways I like to keep it the way somebody specific you know countrymen sang it in the past because it fascinates me just fascinates me (laughs) and I, I, I like to keep some mysteries in songs as well you know well, the explanation kind of justifies the action, but maybe not completely. It seems a little excessive. There's blood in the kitchen. Not there being was, paid. <laughs> there was blood in the kitchen, blood in the hall, blood in the parlor. Where the lady like, did fall, yeah. <laughs> I don't yes. know. I mean, some people have made a bit of a joke about Well, not a joke exactly, but they've, they've smiled as they remark, you know, what's the body count on this album? <laughs> well, I say, you know, it's probably not as high as any violent film you're going to see tomorrow or any game you're going to play on your on your laptop you know yeah oh i get that question (laughs) a lot actually there's a pretty high body count on december's records but i'm glad to hear you i was glad to hear this record and get me off the hook a little bit what is the fascination for you both you both are actually uh at least i think gentle spirits (laughs) yes i am Sorry, Colin, what for you? What's the, well, what's I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, for listening to this record, you know, and, and to have steeped myself in, in some of Shirley's peers and the people who came after her, I often wonder where that fascination comes for me. Like, I don't know that I have an answer. But listening to these songs, it becomes clear. I, I think there is something in these songs, in old folk songs, that appealed to me. There's something about the drama and the grimness and um, what people were up against, particularly at the time when these songs were written. The stakes were just so much higher. Yep, that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm a down-to-earth and very cheerful person, but, you know, I just love these songs. They, They hold me spellbound. And not only for listening to them once, you know, but to to hearing them all the time. I I just am fascinated by them. And in England, there's this sort of melancholy that pervades so many of the songs as well, in the tradition, that is. We think of England sometimes as merry England, you know, or silver jewels set in a silver sea from Shakespeare. But there was a dark side to England as well, um, as I say, there still is. And and these songs just reflect honestly, you know, what is going on all the time. You can't dismiss them, really, and nor do I want to. I love the way you said it against, uh, I, I don't know if this was uh, how this was done, but 
It opens. <laughs> the album opens with these beautiful birds are chirping, and, and, and it's uh, quite a sweet, lovely setting. I imagine I'm sitting outside, and my grass is <laughs> under my feet. Well, we were recording it in my cottage in Lewis, and at the back of my garden is a huge bank with masses of trees and it's filled with birds in the summer and we it was a very hot day when we recorded this particular song and we had all the windows open the kitchen windows and the back door and we recorded the song almost unaware that this bird song was being recorded at the same time (laughs) and when we listened to the playback we all said got to keep it in got to keep it in you know it's such a sort of antidote a, a normalcy against the horror of the story yeah, I'd wondered if you if the record had been recorded outside. I know there's people who have tried that. It's sort of a challenge, but <laughs> no, it was almost nice outside. The window, <laughs> yes. a window being open. Yeah, hearing your voice again, it's been such a long time, and and generations at this point of people have not uh, had a chance to listen to you sing. And the late '70s was the last record I, I can recall. Yes, it on. was. 1978, yes. How do you, uh, and Colin too, for you, Shirley, how is it to hear your voice and how has it changed? And could you tell us a bit about how hard it must have been not to be able to reliably do this? It it was dreadful, um, and I call them my wilderness years because I, I could not sing. And um, but I had to learn to live with it, and and you know find other ways of making a living. And of course, my voice has dropped a lot now because you know because of my age. Um, so my voice is lower. But what I do find as well is that I have to really sing, really concentrate on the singing, um, which, you know, when I was younger, you, I was sort of carefree about singing. You just open your mouth and, and you sing. But now I have to, to just focus in on it. And in a way, it sort of, it sort of adds a, a bit of intensity, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, mm. I, I, you know, voices change over the years. I think there's something extraordinary about hearing these songs through your voice, Shirley, now it, it, it has a kind of a, a gravitas to it almost <laughs> that, you, you know, like it, it, it feels somehow like you know more now what you're singing about than maybe you did in the 50s or 60s, sort of that experience you can hear in, in your voice. I'm sure that must be true, yes. But also, um, when, when this recording was proposed, I said or when I was you know, asked to sing occasionally, I always used to say no. Um, but then a friend of mine pointed out, he said to me, listen, Shirley, all the music you love listening to most are the field recordings of older singers. And he said, mm-hmm. you're one of them now. You know, <laughs> just just remember that, that you, you've always loved this sort of straightforwardness of it, the honesty of it, and the, you know, the age of it, and, and what's behind that age, you know, more ages. I mean, some of the songs, like Cruel Lincoln, for instance, probably dates back to the 15th or 14th century, and yet it's been passed on by people who've learned these songs by heart, you know, people who couldn't necessarily read or write, but they love this stuff so much, and it just passed down through generations from people who learned it by heart, which is the way I learned it as well, you know, directly from from field recordings of older singers. So in a way, I'm quite proud to be one of those older singers now. <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> so wh- why did you stop singing? Why, what brought on the wilderness years? Oh, mind God. Is asking? It was, um, I mean, it was a very painful 
marriage breakdown. Uh, we were working at the National Theatre at the time. Um, my husband, Ashley Hutchings, my then husband, um, we were working at the National Theatre doing promenade performances of a play um, called Lark Rise. And um, he just fell in love with an actress. And I mean, it's so, so awful because um, one, one day we were walking down the road celebrating a wedding anniversary, hand in hand, walking down our lane in, in Etchingham. And then the next day he came home from a visit to London and said, I'm leaving in the morning. I mean, just that abrupt. And, and uh, he'd fallen in love with an actress. He'd said to me, I'm consumed with love and I'm, I'm leaving. And he left. And <laughs> I, t- I tried to sort of continue working at the National Theatre because I thought, well, God, you know, I've, I've earned my place there. But um, this woman would just stand in front of me when I was trying to sing, wearing his sweaters. Oh, and it was mm. just so unbelievably awful and it was humiliating because it's in front of the cast it was in front of the public and I soldiered on for a little while um, and then I watched Ashley fall in love with some another actress at the National he it, you know it was just um <laughs> I don't know what it was he said it was like an illness when we talked about it a bit later and as I've said before you know when well, you certainly had to go to bed with it <laughs> mm. The, uh, um, but anyway, so it, it just, um, and I had two children to bring up, and I've, I've doing myself a disservice, I think, by still trying to sing when I couldn't, and also doing a disservice to the songs, you know, and that's so important to me to, to sing them to the best of my ability and with the best of my understanding. So I haven't lost my understanding, but I certainly did lose my ability at that time. Um, anyway, it's it's all. What's what's great about that is that I wouldn't be here now. You know, I'd have possibly. I don't know what would have happened, but I wouldn't be here with a album called Lodestar. You know, at my age and speaking mm-hmm. to to Colin. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and and Colin, you've been such a collector, listening to her music for so long, and um, absolutely, yeah, recording some of her songs. Surely, have you heard? Uh, Colin, sing any of your songs before? Well, I've seen his lovely EP. With yeah. is it your wife who drew that portrait? Yeah, the Colin? portrait. Oh, of you. it's yeah, so charming! It's so sweet. Yes, Describe. I thought she might have. Yes. Yeah. No, uh, that was very flattering. Except um, as I was thinking, you know, oh, he did choose songs from when I was almost too young to record. <laughs> you know, oh. it's, it's a funny difference between now and then. Um, you know, those were s- such simple songs that I, I'd learned very early um, in my career. I must have been, what, 19 or so. Um, but it was a huge, huge surprise, you know, and, and you know, it's just lovely because I still wasn't singing then. And I thought, well, I haven't been entirely forgotten. And so, oh, Colin, that was a absolutely. lovely thing to do. <laughs> Well, I was going to say, I mean, I was thunderstruck when I discovered Shirley's music. And I and I didn't know at the time that she wasn't singing. You know, I, I didn't know what, I think I was just kind of diving into this world and assuming that it was, it was there and always there. It was one of the only times where I, I think I heard one or two songs and then immediately had to find everything that she'd done. <laughs> And it's interesting you say that about those those early songs. For whatever reason, those were the ones that I gravitated to. When I recorded them, I was thirty, and I had a you know a, a newborn son. Oh, and maybe that maybe I heard something in that kind of youthful naivete that that I connected with. Can I play something uh, uh, that maybe you did sing for your son, Colin? Can, is yeah. Okay? I want to play just a little bit of the opening track to the EP. 
Colin Malloy sings Shirley Collins. My little body dance to your daddy, my little lamb. <laughs> you shall have a fish and you shall have a fin. You shall have a heron when the boat comes in. You shall have a lobster boiled in a pan. Dance to your daddy, my little lamb. Was this something you wound up singing to your uh, to Hank? To your oh song? yeah, that was that was a standby right? lullaby. Oh, um, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it was. Uh, I, I think both Carson and I, my wife, uh, would sing it a lot, and we ended up singing it to our second son as well. It was on the shorter side. It was always always nice to find the kind of the eight-minute-long ballads <laughs> that you could learn because you knew that they would be asleep by the end of the Well, that. they worked then. <laughs> That's beautiful, Colin. <laughs> oh, thanks, Shirley. Does he have any memory of it, Colin? Do you know? Uh, does Hank have any? Yeah. Um, yeah I, you know, I think that those lullabies all kind of become collective unconsciousness. I'm sure that they they fit in somewhere, you know. Some of those songs we kind of mention here and there, and, and he'll remember them. Of course, we have a three-year-old now, so, so we're still <laughs> singing them. We're not done yet. We're not off the hook. We're still learning these old songs. And the longer the better. Shirley, do you remember anybody singing you lullabies? Well, I... Or did you? I do. I mean, I sang lullabies to my children, obviously, but um, I remember my grandparents singing to to my sister and me during the war, when the Second World War, that is, when um, there were bombing raids in Hastings, where I lived at the time, when I was four years old or so, and we had to sleep in their shelter um, when there were bombing raids and granny and granddad would sing to us just to you know to keep our spirits up and to just keep us comforted and feeling safe as i said before i've heard these old voices um you know over the years and i i think in a way that's partly why i love old voices because i still associate that feeling of security even during bombing raids when granny and granddad were singing to us and they would sing lullabies and they would sing one or two songs that i later realized were folk songs and Granny would sing some musical songs because she was more of a townie than Grandad, who was a real countryman. It's the security, really, and the beauty of the tunes of those um, nursery rhymes as well. Did you end up recording any of those songs? Grandad sang the Bonnie Labouring Boy, which I didn't. I mm-hmm. recorded two verses from very early when I first met Alan Lomax. Um, I recorded it much, much later. It was one of the last songs I sang, and it was one of the songs I was singing at the National Theatre as well in that production of Lark Rise. And it's such an emotional song for me that I think I was sort of doubly scuppered, you know, mm-hmm. partly by the emotion that the song raised in me and partly by this wretched actress wearing my... My husband's sweaters. <laughs> Listen, I can laugh about it now. <laughs> well, that's good. Now I'm, I'm now I'm angry at Ashley. I'm going to get rid of all my Albion bands. Oh no, no, no don't, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> you two made beautiful music together. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think we did. <laughs> Is there a song off of uh, of Lodestar that uh, we could that you'd like to hear and talk about? Me. Yeah. Um, well. Oh, I tell you what, could we play Washed Ashore? Um, because this is the, the reason I wanted to put Washed Ashore on the album was that it was the very last song that Dolly arranged for me before she died. Your sister. My sister Dolly, yes, you know, with whom I made so many albums. Mm. And because she had set it 
higher than I could even attempt to sing at that time. I wasn't able to sing it, and it was always a sort of source of real sorrow to me that I hadn't recorded it. Um, so I asked Ian Keary, the producer of the album and the musical director and a very close friend of mine, if he could possibly transpose it. And he worked on it and, and more or less you know, replayed Dolly's arrangement on the instrument. And... Um, it's such a tender song as well. There's a little village in Sussex high up on the Downs um, and there's a Saxon church there, Friston Church. And as you walk through the gate and down the churchyard um, along an old red brick path, you come to a little cross that has nothing on it as you walk towards it. But when you get past it and turn around to look at it, it says washed ashore. So there's obviously some body, you know, washed up on the beach nearby and the villagers gave it a proper burial and a, a mark there, a little cross to remember it. It's such a tender song and, it, you know, it's my last sort of bit of dolly as a as an arranger, so I'd love to hear that, please. stuff. 
It's heartbreaking, it, isn't it? Yes. It is. I mean, it's so fascinating about how the, the the melody and the music can be so uplifting, and yet the 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 story is so sad, so heartbreaking, and tragic. Yes. Um, why does that work? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that that's something that that's been done. From you know that that sort of marrying of of melancholy and uplift and it it makes it it makes music more dynamic more deeper i you know yep to enjoy it on two different levels that's it's true that's it's a true. counterpoint that that makes yeah that works and also i i think that i mean in the end what is it that makes all this living worthwhile it's the touching of hearts it's that kiss it's in the song it's the that you care uh, not yes. you care as the as both the listener of and the empathy that you feel for the characters, but also you well could be one of those characters in some slightly different circumstance. In That's absolutely right. And I also think that the in traditional song you get a sort of plainness, but a beauty in the words, and then you get incredible melodies um, as well. You know, and the alliance of the two just fits so well and. I don't know, I just, you know, I'm just totally enthralled by this music. Um, I can't let it go, ever. <laughs> you know, just, yeah. just, just so grateful that I like it. And what I don't understand is why people can't see it or hear it, you know. They yeah. just don't get it. They think it's old-fashioned or something, but it's not. It's eternal. It is eternal. I mean, I feel like these days, and I don't know what it is, but I'm moved more by these centuries old songs than than a lot of contemporary music it's the only kind of music that these days will actually bring me to tears and because i think that has to do with the the depth of the music i mean you can sit and put it on in your car and enjoy those melodies like shirley was saying but that if, if you just take a moment it's sort of like getting deeper into a book if you just take a moment and really sit and listen to the entire story all of a sudden like the depth of the song will just crush you you know and uh and it just makes the whole experience really extraordinary you know it, there's there's no superficiality to these songs there's layers of depth this is true and there's no built-in obsolescence either which there is <laughs> in so much um you know modern music and also they're, they're imbued aren't they with centuries of people's deep feelings about love and life and death you know and desertion mm-hmm. and and whatever they're just they're steeped you know it's just just deep in it all yeah, it kind of throws away the notion that you can't relate to a certain character because their experience is different than yours. Like, I feel like being moved emotionally by, a, you know, a maiden in her bower, you know, being heartbroken. <laughs> like, I couldn't be more far removed from that. But there's something universal, like it's tapping into a kind of a universal feeling. You could be a listener and hear a great keyboard part or some electronic beat, right? But for most people, they never experienced doing that, and so it's removed. Singing, however, we have all done at some point in our lives, and there's something about someone's voice who could do something that you know that, let's say me, who, who is not a singer, and I love to sing when I'm alone, but I'll, I can sing and know what it means to hear a human voice do something that I just can't, but I know it just hits all something very special in me, 
that connection, that human voice connection telling me a story directly rather than some synth or a guitar line. There's something so direct to the heart about that, t- those tones in a, in a human yeah. voice telling me a story. Though Bob, I think I think you've been taught that you can't sing. I think you can't <laughs> sing. <laughs> Is that the I, next you know, <laughs> and having spent a lot of time recently with Pete Seeger, his, you know, his whole mo, his whole modus operandi was to get people singing. Like That's true. he he wasn't so he he didn't care right. so much about his own voice. It was all about the collective voice and getting everybody singing and teaching everybody that they everybody has a singing voice. I love that. That 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 is actually very true. Go All on, right. Bob. Give uh, us a song. <laughs> <laughs> Put you on the spot. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I wondered in, in thinking of singing and so forth, and dysphonia is what the condition that that is that a, a well, accurate th- description. Or, that's or? what gave its official name, um, yeah. because it was you know you might as well have a name for it. Then people can sort of understand it. Whereas if you you know try and explain the history of it it's um it's just too lengthy really and uh, so just for, i mean linda peters linda thompson um yes. suffered from this as well now she and i are great friends and i mean a couple of times we have been on stage together one or two things that we attended hoping uh, clutching onto each other holding each other up and thinking can we sing can we sing and <laughs> we tried but I mean, we failed, but then it, it didn't matter awfully because lots of other people were there as well. But as I say, Linda and I just clung to each other and thought, what are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> but she's recording again now yeah. and, um, you yeah, know, yeah. and beautifully. And I love Linda singing, uh, you know, so, so from the heart as well. And of course, she's singing lots of Richard Thompson songs, which are, you know, fabulous songs. I was wondering during that time where you weren't recording, were you? Still able to sing, but just, I mean... But I wasn't. I couldn't. I couldn't bear the sound of anything that came out of my mouth. So I didn't sing indoors. Or if I did, I stopped immediately. I started. Um, I just, I couldn't bear it. Um, It just was so painful to listen to. But what what I did all that time, I still kept listening to to songs, mostly the you know the field recordings, although of course other people's um, performances as well. And so I was still learning things all the time through, and that sort of sustained me, I think. And then there was a point eventually where I started to well, I, then I published my book America Over the Water in 2004 um, about my almost year in the states with Alan Lomax back in 1959, and. Once I had it written back, then I thought, thought I just want a few more people to hear this music again, and um, and so I started to write shows um, called America Over the Water, in which an actor friend of mine played all the American voices and some of the English voices that were in there as well, and and so that got me listening again to all the American stuff that I'd collected or helped co- collect, uh, which I'd never sort of lost interest in or love for you know because there's such marvelous music there you know in in america as well well as you know um and so all the time i was listening and soaking more stuff up you know and um finally um after a great many years there was a musician called david tibet of current 93 i don't know if you know him um but he was he came around to me one day when i was i think i was working at a job center in brighton at the time and he phoned up and said um 
Shirley, I really love your music. Could I come and talk to you? And he said that I burst into tears and said, oh, I thought I'd been forgotten. So anyway, he came round with a group of friends and um, that was the start of a good friendship with, with David. And he kept asking me if I would sing, if I would like to make a little EP or something or sing at one of his concerts. And I kept, for years I said, no, no, I can't sing. And then I started to say, well, yes. Um, and then when it came to the day of the concert, I would have to phone him up and say, I can't do it, David, sorry. But finally, 18 months ago, he f- asked me if I'd sing at a concert in London at the Union Chapel, an audience of about 600 people. And I said, yes, all right. But then I actually did it that night. Wow. It was extraordinary. And Ian was there playing accompaniments for me. And I just had to choose songs that I knew were within the range I could still singing. What, and, were, they, uh, what were they? Well, remember? it was death. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely um, seared in my memory that <laughs> night. <laughs> no, so I sang Death and the Lady. Um, with Ian playing slide guitar on it. Now, this is a song I'd already previously sung with Dolly all those years ago, and she, and um, it was a song I, I just particularly loved because I'm not I'm not obsessed with death, you know. But this song's just 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 speak to me. I'm gonna play a little of it. Yeah. <laughs> time has come your time has come and you must away yes wow. <laughs> well um there's I one mean, to come it, back with 
Yeah, <laughs> that comeback song if I ever heard one. Yes, one or two people has asked me if I feel about death more, think about death more um, now that I'm old. But no, I don't really, you know, I just <laughs> just think about it Always as much that. as I ever did. But what, mm. what this song, I don't know if you ever saw a film, you're probably too young, both of you, um, back a while an Ingmar Bergman film um, called The Seventh Seal. And there's a wonderful scene in it where a knight just back from the Crusades uh, sits on a Scandinavian seashore playing chess with death. Mm-hmm. And he's yes. not going to win, is he? <laughs> but it's a remarkable scene. And um, this song might even date back to the time of the Black Death in Europe, um, you know, when so many people were just wiped out. And it's it's not found very often um, sung by singers in the field, but, you know, there have been a couple. And it's just a marvellous sort of survival of a song as well. And... and mm-hmm. It's not morbid to me, it's just really powerful, you know, and a reminder that, you know, none of us actually is immortal. How did that feel to perform that after so many years? How did it feel to hear your voice, to sing after decades? Well, at, at the concert, it was, I, I was, you know, a bit unsteady, um, but there was something sort of really gratifying about it. I thought, you know, I just felt not triumphant because I'd sung it well, but just sort of triumphant that I'd managed to sing it at all. And and it was just the start of, of you know, this, whatever you want to call this that's happening to me now, you know, it's the start, <laughs> start of this part of my life. So I was just grateful that Tibet was patient all those years and finally persuaded me to sing. In all of the songs and stories you've collected and then retell and and singing, Shirley, for someone like Colin, who's heard these songs, it inspired him to write, to tell tales. Did it, Colin? That that were original, (laughs) yeah. Uh, It did, yeah. and, but in all the, also in all the Decemberist records that he's done, oh, the songs are, 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 all, right. of, are <laughs> all these, uh, you know, tales that you feel and oftentimes are coming from somewhere else in some past. They're almost like they're folk songs that were passed down, but they're not at all. They're a, a wild imagining. And, mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering for you, Shirley, if you've ever felt the inspiration to write more songs rather than simply uh, simply that's really the wrong way to put it right to 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 reinterpret these stories and pass them along and and for colin why didn't you just re-sing songs that you loved having heard Shirley, I'm just looking at these two different minds that hear the same thing and do different things with right well for me um traditional folk songs say everything in song that i need to hear or sing about or be spoken about you know they just do everything for me I've never felt the need to write a song Um, I do occasionally write melodies for instance I wrote the tune to Death and the Lady because the one in the book sounded just a bit banal and I wanted a deeper tune you know a a song that had more more presence really Um, so I do occasionally write melodies but I've never written words I um I don't need to, <laughs> but amazing. well, it's not. It's, it's perhaps it's lazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I think there's there's 
people who interpret old songs, it's almost like they're fulfilling a duty, like they're doing something for humanity in retrieving these songs and, and remembering them and carrying them on and teaching them through their recording or, or through playing live. I, I mean, I think that that's enough responsibility right there for a career. You don't need to be right, you know, adding to songs to it. I think just discovering them and, and interpreting them and then showing them to the world is, is important, important work. Well, it's, it's also a question for me of, of honouring those people in you know, past generations who have sung those songs for us and carried them through. And, I mean, in England, for instance, it was mostly, well, it was almost totally working class, the labouring class people of the countryside who kept these songs going. And they were people who in their lifetimes had been, you know, um, despised and overworked and exploited and then moved out, you know, moved on from their land once the Enclosure Act happened in England and they lost their lands. I want to honour them. It's In a way, they're more important to me than people in the present. I, I just mm. want to sort of sing for them. You know, to say, look, this is wonderful music, wonderful words, great art for me. I just want to, as I say, honour them. And that's mm. that's sort of why I do it, apart from the Probably fact that I love it as well, of course, you know. Writing songs was the last thing on their mind at that time. It, lots of... Well, some, of, some of the songs had to be written at the time, though, you know, yeah. because we've got songs that date from the Napoleonic Wars um, here. We've got some songs that we know are 19th century songs. Um, and yet, you know, because they've sort of gone through that process of being passed down by, you know, word of mouth, then they, they sort of acquire this this sort of wonderful feel of a traditional song. But so, so yeah. somebody had to write them in the first place, but we're never going to know who. It does. It feels very communal. It's it's a, we all have ownership of of this music, you know. Yes. As long as it's being carried on and being remembered. Do you imagine uh, in the future someone might sing, uh, let's say, Valerie Plain or? Well, I mean, I think that that's that. I mean, it's interesting. I think it speaks to our privilege, sort of twentieth, twenty first century Western privileges that everybody can write songs now and they're available and who knows that glut of material how much of it will actually make it through I think it it speaks to the power of these songs that they've survived I I don't expect my songs to to survive so long so when you hear these songs sort of in awe of them for having lasted so long I mean they must be doing something yes but then good. they were in that ideal setup you know there there was no radio no television no big music business you know um, no internet they they just had to you know sing the songs mm-hmm. it, it's going to be interesting I think to see whether these songs survive you know the the sort of onslaught of of commercial music now mm-hmm. I mean I think they will I think they will because I love them and because I want them to but um, who knows you know people are going to choose what they want to hear I think that the, the one thing the, the blessing of it I mean so much it we're archiving it you know it's available to people it's, it yeah. was available to me I, and I discovered I feel a lot of my you know discoverings my searchings in the of the British folk revival of you know the mid-century folk scene in in Britain had so much to do with being able to kind of go around on the internet and 
follow little paths from different groups and and uh, and so I think the people who want to find it, it will be there. There will always be a, a subset of people who are celebrating it. I just don't. I don't see this music going away. I think this stuff is is universal. I, I think it's a part of us, you know. Yes, I I agree there. And and you're right about. It. I mean, everything can be found online now. All the collections, you know, that all. I mean, you can just hear the recordings now, which you couldn't when I first um, started out singing. You know, I had to rely on books at first before I started, you know, hearing the field recordings and learning more mm-hmm. that way. So this, um, you know, yeah, you have to feel optimistic about it, don't you? Yes. Mm. I think you do. I do. I feel I optimistic. Do. But that's my own little sheltered view. And, and I, But I also think that it comes back to something we said earlier, which is the idea that the voice is the connector here you know that that that's what you you, you both spoke of the, said the word universal and i think that's what it comes down to and i think that's why they're eternal and that's why a song that's 500 years old no matter despite the fact that we're, we are sitting here in three different <laughs> cities across uh-huh. a long place talking about this music in the first place we wouldn't care about it with all that we have in front of us and all the things we could be doing today if it didn't still resonate and i don't see that going away well no, that's true um, and i must say that you know i'm just thrilled to be here talking to you both it's it's just such a pleasure for me to have a really intelligent understanding conversation about it well your music has touched both of us so much it certainly changed me in in many ways as a teenager in in the in the 60s and 70s and oh, thank you and then hearing this again was just a beautiful thing so thank you so much for having the bravery to do this, I'm so glad that you're you're made a record, Shirley. I've when I found out, I was just so excited, and it's it's such a gorgeous record. It's so beautiful, so oh, well done. Very kind, thank you. Thank you both so much for your time today. A very memorable conversation. Yeah, thanks, Bob, for connecting us yeah. after all these years. I hope we all meet in a room, maybe uh, oh, with the windows open and the birds singing someday. Wouldn't that be? <laughs> that would be so lovely. Listen, I can't thank you enough, Bob and Colin. Um, it's been just, I mean, more than I can express how wonderful this has been. Thank you so much. It's sweet to give back. Thank you. Take oh, care, all. Thank Cheers. you. Thanks, yes. Shirley. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. There was blood in the kitchen. There was blood in the hall. There was blood in the parlor where the lady did fall. As soon as her lord... Colin Malloy of The Decemberists and Shirley Collins... Her new album is out now. It's her first music in 38 years. It's called Lodestar. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered. Saying the nurse shall be burned in the fire close by. Cruel Lincoln shall be hanged on the gallows so Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Delta Airlines, offering Delta Comfort Plus, including a wide selection of unlimited complimentary snacks and drinks. Delta aims to make your travel experience as easy and comfortable as possible, so you arrive refreshed and ready to take on the world.